the sovereign reign of the Lord Jesus Christ and our final accounting before Him should affect every aspect of our lives. Christ's Lordship must influence what we believe. And His Lordship must influence how we behave, how we act day in and day out. Last week we looked at Matthew chapter 6. You can make your way there as we come into chapter 7 today. But last week as we finished out chapter 6, Christ's Lordship must also affect not only what we believe and how we behave, but even our attitudes and our spirit as we face the challenges of life. We were encouraged last week from His words. Three times in that passage, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. My people, do not be anxious. Your heavenly Father providentially feeds the birds and He clothes the wildflowers of the field. Do you imagine He will fail to feed and to clothe you? Do not be anxious. Do not fret about your life like the nations who serve false gods. Such self-dependent, grasping panic is unfitting for those who serve Christ as Lord. Matthew 6 and verse 33, here's what we are to do. Rather, rather than running around in anxiety, grasping and getting and trying to carve out life for ourselves, verse 33 of chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You have a Father in heaven. He feeds the birds. He'll take care of you. Seek His kingdom and His righteousness. This is the orientation of life to which Christ calls us. Now as we come to Matthew 7, we see that Jesus' sovereign lordship and our final accounting before Him must also influence our relationships with others. The stance we take toward others, how we assess them, how we receive them, how we think about them is a vital aspect of our display of God's rule in this world. Jesus here counsels us to shine as light in the world by balancing two relational skills that people who reject Christ seldom display and often despise. Jesus states these two skills in terms of moral prohibition. We find them in Matthew 7, beginning at verse 1. He says, do not be judgmental in your relationships with others. Do not be judgmental in your relationships with others. We find in verse 1 the command, judge not. And then the reason by way of warning that you may not be judged. Explanation, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then his continuing corrective counsel follows in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the command, verse 1, do not judge. 
as with our English word, the Greek word translated judge has a fairly wide semantic range. So we've got to determine what does Jesus mean? How does he use the term in this context and in keeping with the context of the entire Bible? What does Jesus mean by the prohibition, judge not? Uh, Beth returned from the grocery store and I met her in the driveway and she took out a bag of groceries and she gave it to me and said, here, take this bag into the kitchen. So I say, of course, happy to do it. I grab my bag and I go into the kitchen. Now, the kitchen, if you've noticed, is bigger than the grocery bag, right? So by getting it into the kitchen, I've got some options here. I can take this grocery bag and I can put it in the dishwasher and I've taken it into the kitchen. I can take the grocery bag and I can put it into the oven. I could spill it out all over the floor. Or, not to shock her too much, but I could actually put it away where it belongs. I could put it in the refrigerator and some of it in the cupboard and some in this drawer and put everything exactly where it belongs. If I say, well, I put it in the kitchen and I poured it all over the floor... I haven't really done what she meant by, will you take this into the kitchen, right? We understand this intuitively all the time. We're translating words in our head without even thinking about it. Put it in the kitchen might mean take it in and put it away or put it on the counter. Put the bag on the counter, something like that. That's her command, not put it in the oven. That's what's going on here with Jesus when he says, do not judge. The word judge has a wide semantic meaning, and it's our task to figure out what Jesus means by this. 19th century Russian author Leo Tolstoy concluded from this statement, judge not, that Jesus was forbidding courts of law. There should be no judges and no judging. Some Anabaptists argued that Jesus is restricting his followers from serving society as judges. They would be disobeying this command if they judged others in a court of law. Is that how we read it? I think such interpretations miss what Jesus means in my illustration, take it in the kitchen. I think these things are like putting it in the oven. I think they're missing the point of what he's saying here. What is he saying? Does Jesus mean that we turn a blind eye and stoically press on in the face of injustice and disobedience and rebellion against God? Is this a command to say in all cases, you are entitled to your opinion. Truth is determined by one's perspective. And I have no freedom to tell you that your view is wrong. That's what it means to not judge. That what Jesus is saying. Let me offer several reasons why I believe that's not what he means. I, and I do want to belabor this at some length. In the context of Matthew, that interpretation, you believe whatever you want, I'm not someone here to judge, I'm not to tell you what the truth is, it doesn't even work in the context of Matthew. In this sermon itself, Jesus has already said, 520, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is saying there, you need to look at their life and you need to judge it. And you need to look at your life in comparison and line it up. 
But he's clearly not saying suspend all judgment. In this very passage itself, he goes to verse 6 and says, Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. We'll talk about the interpretation of this proverb, Lord willing, in a few moments. But that's clearly deciding that someone's a dog and a pig. That's judgment. As we go on with Jesus teaching here in this very passage, this very chapter, he says, beware of false prophets in verse 15 who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? You discern, you judge. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. You'll look at their life. You will line it up against what God has said, and you will judge. Proper judgment. In John 7, Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is Jesus. Judge with right judgment. In Matthew 18, in this matter of church discipline, He calls upon us to confront a brother who has wronged us, to bring others in, as witnesses, so that they will be able to understand what has taken place and whether or not sin and Trent's sin is really the issue here. And if that one refuses to repent of their sin, we're to take it to the church. And the church does what? It passes judgment. This is Jesus' teaching. Now the Jesus that says, judge not, is quoted a lot. But we've got to take all of what Jesus said. And we have to take what he meant. And it's clear. He's not saying believe whatever you want to believe and I have no right to say anything or to stand on the truth or to turn a blind eye to everything. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is not saying that. But we go to the apostolic teaching. 1 John 4, one. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Test the spirits. Discern who's a false prophet. You're going to have to judge. Galatians 1, Paul says, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him be accursed. What's a curse? Judged. Condemned. Galatians 6, one, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves lest you too be tempted. He's in sin. We're going to come alongside. We're going to restore him gently with humility. Not just say, well, you're entitled to your way of life. You're free to live however you wish. That is not the instruction of the apostles. As Paul says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Jesus is not saying, pretend no one's done anything wrong. Now, 
I'd belabor this point. We could add many more to these texts. In fact, we could draw upon larger biblical theological themes. We have the ministry of the prophets who judged Israel's compliance with the Mosaic law to be deficient. And they preached about it often. Local church elders are to rebuke sin and expose false doctrine. The culture of mutual confession and admonition that the New Testament envisions for the local church. We live in a pluralistic, individualistic culture that prizes moral liberty and freedom of expression. And many people jump on Matthew 7 and say, look at that. You're not to judge me. This is the normal pattern in our world. And so I think it's important that we think carefully through what Jesus himself was saying. Somebody takes Matthew 7, 1 and says, don't judge me. Now, first of all, they might be right, so knock it off. But if they're not right, and you're simply saying this is wrong because God says that it's wrong, remember, just think, what did Jesus teach? You don't even have to go out of the Sermon on the Mount. So judging in itself is not wrong. So how we take kitchen, in my illustration, and how we take judging here, we have to do some work. What then does Jesus mean? As we would put this together with all of the New Testament, what he means is that to prohibit a critical, judgmental spirit. What he means is that we should not savor opportunities to criticize others for their failures and weaknesses. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is never served when we take up a harsh critical, unloving, negative spirit and superior attitude toward others. He is not honored when we judge others' mistakes harshly and without mercy. Righteousness suffers defeat when we nitpick at others' faults and we become the self-appointed, hypercritical inspector of others' beliefs and actions. That, says Jesus, does not honor me. That is not what I want you to do. You will serve no one. He bolsters this prohibition with this reason that he gives then in verse 1, that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Judge and measure being synonymous. Now, we could interpret this two ways. One, we could say others will judge you by the standard you use to judge them. This may be true at times. People may judge me less harshly if I judge them less harshly. But this seems far from a given. To say nothing of providing a rather strange motivation for not judging others. I'm not going to judge others so that I get a free pass. I'm not judged by them in the same way. It seems rather strange to me, and good people believe that, but is it virtuous for me to minimize the possibility of receiving criticism by not criticizing others? Is that what Jesus is saying? I think a stronger case can be made for this interpretation. We should not judge others because God will use the same standard to judge us. Now, this, in fact, has support within the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 6 and verse 14. Chapter 6 and verse 14, he says, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
not talking about trespasses and getting us to heaven, but just that if we are not forgiving toward others, how can we ask God to forgive us? So that very theme is there already in the, book, in the Sermon on the Mount, and I think it's then the idea here, do not judge others because the judgment you pronounce, God will use to hold you accountable. If you have a judgmental spirit toward others, a harsh, critical standard of how people must perform to gain your approval, God will apply that same standard to you. So there's two siblings in the back seat of a car on a family trip in the summer, and the law of the Medes and the Persians has been established, and there is territorial rights in the back seat. It goes right down the middle. We have the perfect boy and girl situation, and that just makes it easy. The older brother says to little sister, hey, you're over my half of the seat. Get your leg back over where it belongs. Now, that's, that's violation 433 on this trip, and mom and dad just kind of let it go by. That's at least they're not killing each other at this point. It's okay. But then mom looks back a little ways down the road and sees brothers way over on sister's side while she's looking out the window and not noticing, and she knows World War III is about to erupt, and what's she going to say to him? Hey, well, it depends on what school you're out of. If you're out of the one school, if you're out of the Miller school, you say, hey, knock it off. You just told her to get off of your side, get on your side. You need to do what you're, pre- preach, do what you're preaching here. Other school is, now, honey, that's inconsistent with what you just said before. That's, that's the new way. You know, our, our way is just knock it off. But now it's this long discussion to not f- ruffle any feathers. But isn't mom, both moms doing the same thing? We do this all the time without even thinking about it. When someone sets a high standard, we expect them to live by that standard. God, our Father, is sort of saying that. When I turn around and look in the back seat, I'm going to expect you're doing what you're judging other people to do. Of course. I don't think we overwork it into every scenario and every situation. God is a God of grace. He's not a petty father. But it's just a simple way of life. The standard that you use, verse 2, God will use to judge you. He'll hold you to that same standard. It's only right. But unlike a human parent, God judges us with a perfect standard. And He does so fully aware of the many ways in which we fail to live up to the standard we use to criticize others. He knows this. So when we judge someone, a liar, an adulterer, a selfish person, a materialist, we should learn the skill of pausing and considering that any judgment we render is offered in the presence of the judge of the universe. Any criticism that we make, he's there. When I criticize someone, if I would stop and be forced to picture myself, very often I'm picturing myself as the judge. I'm behind the desk in the center of the courtroom. And I'm looking down from my perch and saying, you're out of line. You shouldn't do it that way. This is wrong. You should be rebuked. That's where I see myself. 
Under Jesus' teaching, we need to get ourselves in our picture, in our mind vision, out of that seat as the judge at the center behind the desk and get ourselves down on the floor. I'm the prosecuting attorney. And everything I say against the defendant, the judge is watching me. He's saying, you go by that standard, I'm going to hold you to the standard you're imposing on others. Any word of criticism that I offer, any judgment that I make, I need to know God is the judge. He watches and he hears and he doesn't sleep. There's a warning here. An awareness of the Lord's judgment will help my judgments be more accurate and gracious when I know that I've been handled with grace will lead me to handle others with grace. And so we ask that question of ourselves, am I willing to be judged by God by the same standard I use to judge others? Am I willing to be judged by God according to the same standard that I use with others? You know, many times, if we're honest, we really hope God will cut us a lot more slack. We don't want to be held to our own standard. God says, what are you thinking? What do you think I'm going to do? Willing or not to be held to that standard, we are. So judge not. Don't wrongly criticize and harshly with unmerciful, ungracious precision Hold others to a standard you're not willing to live to yourself. The corrective counsel now comes in verse 3. That's the command, the warning, by way of reason. And now the corrective. Verse 3, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you take Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? A judgmental spirit causes us to hold others to a very high standard as if we are picking a fleck of wood out of their eyes. Let me help you with that. That's not right. And we pick that fleck out. They must do things according to my expectation. They must not bend God's law in the least. They must be flawlessly on time, entirely selfless and impeccably truthful. They must guard their eyes and hands and feet. They must care for themselves according to a disciplined way. And all the time I'm policing my fellow man, there are far more significant failures in my own life. A speck in my eye? No, there's a log, a wooden plank, a beam that's protruding out of my eye. It's exaggeration, hyperbole, of course, but he's he's making the point, isn't he? It would be interesting to read more commentators than I have on this point, but I'd like to, I wonder if there's one that doesn't reference King David here. They all bring this up. It is the classic example. The man with a harem as a king and multiple wives takes one man's wife for himself. He commits adultery with her. He murders her husband. He is a man walking in entrenched sin. 
And you remember Nathan the prophet comes and talks about a man in power who takes one man's sheep. And what does David do? He's enraged. What a picture. The beam, the plank that's in his eye. He doesn't see it. But he picks away at the speck of the man who took a sheep. So it is with us. Let's be honest with ourselves and permit the Spirit of God to teach us and to direct us how often we hold others to a standard we're not willing to get anywhere near. And how often do we pick away at the little things in criticism when there is massive inconsistencies in our life. I don't think Jesus is saying never judge anyone. Look the other way whenever there's wrong. What he's saying is get the plank out of your eye. In fact, he makes that fairly clear in verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There's nothing wrong with discerning the speck in someone else's eye. There's nothing evil about helping them take it out. In fact, that might be seen in many situations as a great kindness. But what Jesus is clearly saying is attend first to your own issues. Address your own weaknesses. Admit your own wrong. Live a life of repentance. So that no one is mistaking your criticism as missing yourself. You're the kind of person willing to say, I was wrong. You're the kind of person willing to say before God, I repent. Forgive me. And then in that spirit of humility and meekness, we are free to help others. In fact, we're instructed to do so. Do take the speck out of your brother's eye, but first take careful account of your own life. John Stott puts this so well. He says, we need to be as critical of ourselves as we often are of others and as generous to others as we always are to ourselves. follower of Jesus, we live in a hyper-critical culture. It spews judgmental declarations all the time. People make their living off of such judgments. Listen to the fruitless and bitter thrashing of political candidates by reporters and pundits. Listen to the harsh condemnation of sports commentators, what they heap on players and coaches and managers and referees. They're merciless. They're absolutely merciless. Listen to how parents speak of school administrators, how prosecutors flay defendants, and what summer drivers think of MnDOT's management of road construction season. We are critical, critical people. Listen how siblings judge one another and how parents and children criticize one another. Hear the angry criticism of married couples who point at one another and say to God, He, she, the one you gave me. There's so much made in our society about racism 
Now, racism is a wicked thing, and it's a thing. But more fundamentally, people simply hate people. You can do anything you want to try to find, fight racism if we don't get to the heart of the matter that we hate. We're going to get nowhere. Loveless, competitive self-promotion carried on the wings of a critical spirit and judgmental accusations is a raging disease that corrupts human relationships. Into this vile world, Jesus enters. And he gathers a people about himself. And he says, come with me. We're going to go into this dark world and we're going to shine as light. And one way we're going to shine as light is we are not going to bring a judgmental, critical spirit into the mix. We're going to see falsehood and call it what it is. We're going to speak against those who violate the will of God, but we are not going to be judgmental. Our lives are to be a beacon of grace, of forgiveness, of humility, of edifying speech, and the meekness of people who know we are worse sinners than people recognize, and we don't expect to be treated as if we're not. We relate to sinners tempered in our relationships by the reality of Romans chapter 14. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? And notice his reasoning. For you should not despise and judge your brother because of this. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If I really get that, that really begins to control the way that I see myself in this world, that future accounting before the throne room of God mutes much of my critical spirit. It takes away all of its sin. And it leads me to align with the position of the King of kings and Lord of lords. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. See, if I look again at myself as being a player down on the floor, and I'm the prosecuting attorney when I judge someone, the one behind the desk is the king of the universe, and he's listening. I will give account of myself to him. May that affect us deeply. Followers of Jesus, how clean are our tongues? How free are spirits of an attitude of judgmentalism? You may be here today and your knee is yet unbowed to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He's not your master. You're your own master. Nobody that's going to tell you what to do unless this has to be, but you are not going to yield to anybody's authority. You are not going to seek Jesus as your Savior, not yet. You say there's a great danger in this passage for you, and that's to see this promise of pending judgment before God and to dismiss it as no thing. There's a danger 
as well. And that's to say, I'm going to take it as a thing. I'm going to stand before God and I am going to earn a right standing before him by being good enough to secure his favor. That too is utterly, tragically dangerous. The truth is that before the perfect justice of all of the all knowing and perfectly holy God, we don't have a prayer. Accept the prayer turning to Christ as our representative and our Savior. Have you lied? Have you stolen? Have you broken God's law regarding sexuality? Have you lusted for money and judged others unfairly and selfishly? You aren't standing before God in your own righteousness and living to tell about it. As Romans 3 says, all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified freely as a gift of His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The wages of sin is death, it's judgment, but the free gift of God is eternal life. This is the only hope for any of us. Trust it. Turn to Christ with your sin. He's paid the penalty and there's no other way to stand before the judge. This is the reason we don't live with hypercritical attitudes toward others as well. This very message that we're understanding here. When we know that God as our judge substitutes Christ to take our sin and to pay the penalty of our sin, it changes the way we look at sinners. It changes our perspective of the rebel because we see ourselves as the ultimate rebel. Now the relationship, as we look at this command to judge not, its relationship to verse 6 that follows is, has troubled commentators for a good long time. A good argument can be made for seeing verse 6 as an independent statement that's unrelated to verses 1 through 5 and to the following verses. Remember, Jesus did not drag people up to this mountain to have a 10-minute conversation. Maybe it would take that long to read Matthew 5-7. through He said a lot of things, undoubtedly. This is the summation of it. This is the the outline, so to speak, of it. And it might be that 7-6 took a half a day or 30 minutes or something like that. But how does it fit within the context here? It's perhaps more than coincidental that verse 6 provides a balance to the instruction we found in verses 1 through 5. It at least serves this way sermonically, and so we'll take it that way for just a few more moments. But on the one hand, we must not relate to others with a critical judgmental spirit. That is clear. Do not judge others. Don't take that spirit with them. It's wrong. It's not Christ-like. It's not light in this dark, hypercritical world. On the other hand, verse 6, do not be in discriminating in your relationships with others either. Don't be judgmental in those relationships, but don't be undiscriminating. Jesus speaks figuratively here in this proverb. Let's note it. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. 
He's not talking here about literal dogs and literal pigs, but about his followers' relationship to a certain kind of people. Who are the dogs and the pigs? First, we should not think of dogs as a house-trained pet who comes along on family vacations and, God forbid, sleeps in your bed, or at least at the foot or something like that, just seeing if you're awake. But not that kind of dog. If you've been in another country, perhaps in a few places in this country, you've seen these dogs and they leave an impression. They're mangy, skinny, dirty, filthy, and you'll find them either moving or eating at a garbage dump. That's their day. They're semi-wild. And if you leave them alone, they'll probably leave you alone, but don't cross one. They're ugly, nasty animals that are just to be left alone. And pig, when we take this, think of the context that Jesus is in, not the lovable creatures that we see in a clean pen at the state fair that you pay homage to as the supplier of your bacon. Not that. That's not the relationship they have with pigs. These are unclean animals. They're wickedly dirty, but they're even off limits to God's people at this point in time. When Jesus hears her dogs and pigs, they would have thought generally of Gentiles and specifically of people who reject God's word. Now, it's clear the words are used this way. The Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 2 that uh, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. He's not making a simple observation. He's using this as an illustration of what? 2 Peter chapter 2 is a whole chapter on false teachers. And so he says it is true of these false teachers. The dog has returned to its, eat its own vomit and the sow after washing returns to wallow in the mire. They're dogs and they're pigs. Peter uses the very same idea. As does Paul to the Philippians. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who are these three people? They're one people. They're one type of person. They're dogs, evildoers, and those who are claiming that only through circumcision can we please God. Watch out for these false teachers, says Paul. They are undermining the gospel of Christ. The dogs and the pigs is one question, but the other is what is holy? What is holy and pearls? What's the reference there? It refers to the message of the kingdom, the message of salvation from sin through trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we could at least aim this direction as we think of Matthew 13, where the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. As we put it all together then, dogs and pigs appear to be a reference to those who undermine salvation in Christ, who undermine the gospel. Do not throw the truth of the gospel in the muck. Don't take what's holy and give it to dogs. Don't throw pearls before pigs. The pigs will trample the pearls and the dogs will turn and tear you. They'll shred you. They'll attack you. That's what he's saying. 
He's not saying we should refuse to witness the gospel to those who despise it. He's not saying we should give up on an unbeliever after we've shared the gospel once or twice. That's not what he's saying. He's exhorting us to learn to discern who dogs and pigs are and to know better than to waste our time trying to convince them of God's truth. Trying to take the things of God and presenting that to them in such a way that it just makes it muddy and ugly. I think the key is this. With certain false teachers, with certain rejectors of the gospel, the best way to spread the gospel is to oppose them. Not to share the grace of Christ with them as such. And we might get there and some change might take place, and then we do. But there are certain people where you say... The best way to serve the gospel is to oppose this person, to call this person the false teacher they are, to let people know. So don't get any idea here that Jesus is saying it's okay to allow fear to keep you from sharing the gospel. It's all right for you to determine who's going to respond and who is not. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is you need to discern. There are some people who need to hear the gospel, and there are some people the best way of spreading the gospel is to stand up to them and say, you are wrong, this person is wrong. It's a long story, but I met a man in our community who was intrigued with some of my historical research and writings, and he asked me to present that work at what was essentially a neo-pagan center of false spirituality. For a moment, I thought about it. How long could I speak before being run out and uh, stoned in the parking lot or something like that? But I, I could have entertained the group with the historical component, and shown light on the gospel in the process, but determined there's better ways to invest our time. Just an example of it. False teachers show up at your door. Another example. Discerning who those false teachers are, whatever church that they're promoting, and whatever way they're going to tell you Jesus is not the Savior, which was always their agenda, you may find that you have an opportunity to speak to them, but you might find it may be very appropriate to simply say it's time for you to move on. We need to discern the difference between someone whose ears may be open and maybe someone who even needs lots of opposition over a long period of time and the difference between them and someone who's a false teacher. It means we need to judge in the right sense, to look at God's truth, to line it up with what this person is saying, and to say, you have an agenda. You are attacking the truth of Christ. Now again, we think of the cultural world in which we live. It's just so counter to this. Western individualism teaches us to mind our own business. Humanistic psychology teaches us to extend positive regard and unquestioning acceptance to one another. Western philosophy teaches us pluralism and multi-perspectivalism in which everyone's view is to be unconditionally accepted as valid to them. Into this world again enters Jesus Christ. And he calls followers to himself and says, we're going to shine light in this world. 
And we're going to do it this way by seeking the truth of God's kingdom and submitting to Christ as master, bringing our beliefs and our behaviors and our attitudes under the alignment of his rule such that anyone who is opposing that agenda, we call out as a dog and a pig. Now, I think evangelistically in our day, it's probably not best to use those terms. It may not be the best in our setting to call someone a dog and a pig. Jesus called Herod Antipas that fox, and it wasn't a compliment. He called the Pharisees hypocrites in whitewashed tombs. He called the Jewish establishment a brood of vipers three times in the book of Matthew, the Jesus most Christian churches don't want anybody to know about. And whenever they come to those passages, they just skip them. But this is our Savior. He didn't do that to be ugly, to be mean, because he was a nasty person. He did that because it was the truth. Their bent in life was destroying people's perception of the gospel, and he opposed them. So while we may not use the words dog and pig, that may not be evangelistically appropriate in our setting, we do need to know what they are. In the public square, we may use other terminology than Jesus could use in his day, but we must not have less backbone. In a world that is so bent the other direction, we've got to say there is absolute truth and there are people who live in opposition to it. We must develop our discriminating powers of discernment. There are people who honor God, people who don't, and faithfulness to Jesus demands that we learn the difference. Our calling is not to land on the right side of history as our world defines it, Our task is not to simply be nice people. Our task is to line up with Jesus who will judge the living and the dead in his kingdom. And we line up there then as we discern who we are and who others are in our relationships. And perhaps just a brief word to somebody here who's dealing with a lot of criticism. And you're suffering today, you're hurting today because of a critical, harsh spirit of others toward you, the unfair, judgmental orientation of even hatred toward you. Take hope. Take hope here. There is a judge, and he'll have the last say. We don't have to bite and scratch and claw and demand that people see us for who we truly are. Jesus sees you for who you truly are. Rest in that. Find comfort in his judgment. And there should certainly be implications, not only for us individually, but for us corporately as a church. That the spirit of this church, that our orientation together as we build an environment of Christ likeness here, that we would not be judgmental and hypercritical of unbelievers in our world. There's a lot to judge and a lot to criticize. The people are lost in their sin. They're confused. They're spiritually empty. How would we expect them to live? Our rescue by Jesus from God's wrath 
should give to us an orientation of grace and mercy and patient compassion towards sinners like us. Our lives have been transformed by what Jesus did for us when we were his enemies. May we never forget that when stupid people do stupid things. When sinners act like, guess what? They're sinners. So are we. Lost, confused, empty, but we've been rescued by the mercy of Christ alone. Take that spirit and let's run with it and let's see it in our church pervade as we come not with hypercritical, judgmental spirit, but as those saved by Christ. And with that spirit, we need to bring in not a naive, undiscerning, undiscriminating spirit toward those who lead the rebellion against God. We need to have a solid backbone and stand with courage against those who are dragging people away from the way of Jesus. And I think as one professor of mine said some years back, I think there's good wisdom in it. When a church gets this right, it's going to have people that love it. People outside the church, community members that say they love those people. That church, there's a beauty there. There's a grace there. There's a kindness there. There's an understanding there. They don't jump on the criticism the way others do. I like those people. I don't know why. I think what they believe is weird. But there will be many that look to us and say, those are good people. And at the very same time will be people who say, I hate those people. I don't like anything about them. I don't like what they're saying. I don't like what they believe. They teach horrible things. Think if we're tracking properly, we're going to have people hitting us from both angles. Those who see the beauty of Christ and rejoice and those who say, I don't like them. That's all right. Jesus had people who loved him and he had people who crucified him. Let's, let's bow for prayer. Lord, we need you to this end. We ask for your help and aid. As a church, there's much rebuke that we need to find here. In my life, there's much rebuke. And I thank you for the rebuke. I thank you for the correction. I pray that we'd be responsive to it we'd not be judgmental, that we would be properly discriminating. Lord, for those who do not understand your judgment and your gracious mercies, open their eyes to that truth today and may they reach out to you and accept the free gift of salvation in Christ. I pray for them and ask that they would not be turned away by outer appearance or anything they see here that does not match up with what they would like. But I pray that they'd realize they have come before the ultimate message of human history. Christ crucified to pay the penalty of sins and risen in power over death and hell. May they come to see that truth, look at it clearly, and embrace it even today, we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen.